Good morning once again. Happy Easter. So good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to CBC. And if you are visiting uh, with us this morning, uh, we're really grateful that you're here. Um, obviously, I know some of you are here for the baptisms, and, and, and we're glad. We're excited for what's going to take place. We're excited for each one of them. We're excited that you are here, and we hope that you are, are blessed uh, during our time together today. Well, we're going to jump into our passage this morning. For those of you who are visiting, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark uh, these past few months, and today we're going to wrap it up from chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. Um, and also, I just want to say, for those of you who've been here, it's been a while since I've, been la I've last been up here to share, so I'm really excited, still a little nervous, even though I just did it, uh, but really humbled and grateful to get to do this for you, with you, serve you in this way. So Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, Mark writes, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, comma, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word, God. And God, as we gather here to, to study what you have spoken, I pray that you would speak to each one, that it be your words, not my words. And God, that we would walk away with a little extra sense of how awesome you are and a desire to grow closer to you. So God, speak to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the very first Easter morning, early Sunday morning, and Mark tells us that three of Jesus' followers, three of the women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, uh, they wake up early and they make their way down to the marketplace. They buy some spices and make their way towards Jesus' tomb with the full intention of anointing Jesus' corpse. And according to Jewish tradition, uh, to anoint someone's body or their deceased body was a way to honor their life. And it was also to help alleviate some of the smell from a decomposing body. And also per Jewish tradition, just to note, Women were allowed to anoint both the bodies of men and women, whereas the men were only allowed to anoint the bodies of fellow men. So the 11 disciples, they could have easily come along to honor Jesus' body in the same way, but for whatever reason, they chose not to. So, as these, so Mark tells us as the women are, are walking towards the tomb, it, it dawns on them, right? Oh, shoot. 
Like, how are we going to get into the tomb? Who is going to roll away the large stone? So they're beginning to feel a little worried. They're maybe looking side to side and being like, have you been doing soul fit lately? <laughs> like, I haven't. How much can you deadlift? How much can you curl? Um, so so they're, they're a little worried. So here you get this snapshot, right? This picture of three of Jesus' followers. Uh, they are making their way towards Jesus' tomb. They are presumably filled with a sense of grief, a sense of sadness, sorrow. Uh, they are worried, right? They're, they're worried about how they're going to get into the tomb. And they're literally carrying with themselves uh, spices, presumably oils, waters, with the intent of anointing Jesus' corpse. So here in this very moment, here in this snapshot, we as readers... We know that Jesus is fully alive. We know that he has risen from the dead, that he has conquered sin and death, that he has been given authority over heaven and earth, that he's a king of kings, lord of lords. We know that as a reader. But here in this moment, his followers are living a life as if he were still dead. Everything that they're, they're feeling presumably the grief, the sorrow, the sadness, everything that they're thinking, all that they're worried about, how are we going to get into this tomb, how are we going to anoint his body, everything that they're carrying with them literally communicates funeral rather than birthday party. And this isn't a criticism on the women. Like we said, the men are nowhere to be found. They're still hiding out somewhere too afraid to come out. And, you know, most scholars, I don't know anyone, you know, nobody blames these women or even the disciples for feeling the way they did, for believing at this moment that Jesus was still dead. But let's look at the, the words of the angel one more time, uh, going back to verse 6. Right? He says, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Right, so the angel emphasizes two things right off the bat. First, Jesus really did die. Two, he's risen from the dead. So first, let's be clear. He says Jesus did really die. He was crucified. In other words, your mind isn't playing tricks on you. Everything that you witnessed, the torture, the crucifixion, the final breath, his lifeless body hanging on the cross, that really did happen. He really did die. This is where they laid him. But he has risen from the dead. He has been raised to life. In other words, you're not at the wrong tomb. Nobody stole his body. Rather, he's risen from the dead, and he is on his way to Galilee. And then with these five last words, the angel kind of slips in this very kind, loving, gentle, gracious jab to the gut. He says, just as he told you. Now it's not a, you know, he told you so. Like kids, we know the difference, right? We've heard our parents be like, didn't I just tell you? Versus like, I, just as I told you. Right? One is nicer than the other, right? And the angel here is not 
condemning him, but he's saying, just as Jesus told you. In other words, everything that has happened is what he's been telling you over and over and over. Right? You look back just in Mark's gospel, you go back to Mark chapter 8, right after Jesus is asking his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they're like, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're John the Baptist, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Right? And Jesus responds, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, rather by my Father in heaven. So right after this, this is what we see in verse 31 to 32. He, referring to Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Moving down to chapter 9, verse 31. He, referring to Jesus, said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Moving down to chapter 10, verse 33 to 34. Jesus says, We are going to Jerusalem. He said, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And then in chapter 14, verse 28, it says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So what the angel is implying is that there is a, another version of this story somewhere in the multiverse, Right, an alternate reality. I'm joking. <laughs> right, but a, another version of the story where Jesus is crucified and his followers, rather than mourn and grieve and prepare for a funeral, they simply pack it up and head off to Galilee because this is what Jesus had told them over and over and over. And once again, nobody faults the disciples for not fully understanding. But what the angel is communicating is that they, they could have known. Perhaps they, they should have known. And that leads us to the question of, of what about when it comes to, to our life? We, as believers, we profess that Jesus is alive. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. His kingdom is here on earth. And he has been given authority over heaven and earth. We believe he is alive. Yet are there moments in our life where we live as if he were still dead? Are there certain parts of our life that would possibly communicate to others that he's not alive, that he's not king, that he's not in control, that he's not powerful? Like if we could somehow do an analysis, right, on all of our thoughts, everything we think, everything we desire, everything that we yearn for, our goals, things we want to accomplish, things we want to accumulate, if we could somehow assess all of our fears and all of our worries, all the things that cause us stress 
and anxiety. If we could examine our calendars, how we spend our time, who we spend our time with. If we could analyze our budgets, how we spend our money. If we could somehow shine a light on all of our sins and all of our struggles, and if we could gather all of that data, put it up on a screen, would it communicate with overwhelming clarity that we believe that Jesus is fully alive, that he is ruling and reigning, and we are his disciples. And if we could do the same thing with somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is alive, who either believes he never existed or he's still dead or nothing special, and we could do the same thing with their life. Do an analysis on all their thoughts and all their desires and all their dreams and all their fears and all their worries and how they spend their time and how they spend their money and all the things they struggle with, and we can gather all that data and we could put that up on a screen. How different would their life be next to ours? And you see, in this moment for Jesus' followers, in this brief moment, Jesus was alive, yet they were still living as if he were still dead. And I think that's true for some of us, at least some of the times, when it comes to our lives today. Look at what the angel says to the woman once again. Going back to verse 6, it says, don't be alarmed. The very first thing he says to them is, don't be alarmed. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear to worry about. In light of everything that had just happened, in light of their doubts, in light of their disbelief, in light of the death, the resurrection, these followers have nothing to worry about. And right from the get-go, we see the grace and the mercy and the kindness that is being extended to his followers, regardless of all that just had happened. Right before Jesus died, he told his followers, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, and when I do, meet me in Galilee. And now that he's been dead, risen from the dead, he's telling them, meet me in Galilee. In other words, everything that had just happened in between, the rejection, the denial of knowing Jesus, the running, the hiding, the doubt, the disbelief, Jesus is telling them, none of that changes anything. I still want to be with you. I want you close. I want you near. I want you back. And the angel specifically tells the woman, tell the disciples and Peter. And the reason he says and Peter is because Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, even you, even though you all fell asleep in Gethsemane, even though you, Peter, chose the sword over the spirit, even though you denied knowing me three times when you promised that you would never leave me, even you, Peter, I want you back. I want you near. I want you with me in Galilee. And I think some of us need to be reminded of that truth today. That regardless of where you are in your relationship with God, regardless of how you've been living your life, Jesus wants you close. He wants you near. Maybe some of you, 
because of the circumstances that you have faced have caused you to question God. Maybe you've been angry at God. Maybe you've doubted God. Maybe you've grown distance from God. Maybe some of us, it's, it's been a long time since we even thought about God, spent time with God, listened to God. Regardless of where you are, Jesus invites you to draw near. There is no anger. There is no hostility. There is no frustration. There is simply a desire for you to draw near to him. And it's not because Jesus doesn't care about our sins but rather because he loves us so much he went to the cross to die for our sins. That he took on the punishment we deserve so that we can get all the blessing, all the goodness that he deserves. And the first step in, in receiving that grace is, is believing it. Is believing that even though we're imperfect, even though we're broken, even though we've made mistakes, Jesus extends grace and only grace. He desires for us to, to draw near. Right? For these disciples, the very foundation, right, the beginning, the first step of them living a life that demonstrates that Jesus has risen from the dead, it all starts with them receiving this grace, believing that he's alive, believing that he's forgiven them, and believing that he's not waiting to punish them. They got to believe it. They have to receive it. That first step is to believe it by faith. And there's an and here. They got to do one more thing. They got to walk 80 miles to go see Jesus in Galilee through the desert. Right? I mean, Jesus could have easily just waited for them at the tomb, you know? I mean, what's the rush? Could have waited for them at the tomb and be like, boo, surprise. I'm alive, just as I told you. He says, meet me, meet, meet me in Galilee. You see, faith often leads us to a, a response. God will often test our faith by inviting us to respond. And we have to be clear here, right? The 80 miles is not what earns them grace. Grace has already been earned for them. The 80 miles is invitation for them to demonstrate their faith and to experience a little more grace, a little more of God's goodness. Right? You think about the disciples in this moment, they have no idea what God has in store for them, what Jesus has in store for them. Right? They have no idea that they're going to they're gonna about to go out and change the world. They have no idea that Shortly after, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit who's going to empower them to share the gospel with power, with signs, with wonders. They have no idea that they're going to grow and mature in such a way where every single one of them will willingly and joyfully suffer for the name of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't ask them to do those things right here. He's not even asking them to get better, do better, finish writing the Bible, then read it every single day. He's not telling them to be perfect. He's simply asking them, walk 80 miles, meet me in Galilee. And for them to respond, for them to walk those 80 miles, it would be them declaring by faith, we are going to Galilee 
because Jesus has forgiven us, he's extended grace, and he's got nothing but goodness that awaits us. You know what the disciples do? They stay in Jerusalem. They don't go to Galilee. Jesus has to pay them a visit, walk through a wall. Boo! I'm alive. I'm not mad. I'm happy to see you. Here are the holes in my hand. Hold to my side. Jesus is that gracious. He is that good. That is the kind of mercy he extends. Meet me in Galilee. Then they go to Galilee, and then what does he tell them? The Great Commission. And then he says, go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> Wait for my spirit, which is, which is worth it. Is there anything that God may be asking you today? Inviting you to step into your faith, to demonstrate trust, not to earn grace, but just to receive a little more of it. About six or seven months ago, Monday morning, I think it was a long weekend, dropped the kids off at school, and I headed over to the Fullerton Loop to, to do a, a quick mountain bike ride. And like I said, it had been a long weekend, so I kind of just wanted to be by myself, be out in nature, decompress, go on a casual ride, just to start off the week and rest in that way. So I'm as in my car, I'm pulling out my bike, I'm grabbing my gear, I, I hear this voice behind me. It says, excuse me, sir, but do you want to ride together? <laughs> and, I, and I turn back and I see this little kid on a bike just smiling at me. And everything inside of me was like, no. <laughs> that is the last thing I want to do right now. Like, I just want to be by myself. So I gave him some kind of response like, no, hey, man, thanks so much, buddy, but why don't you, I'm slow, I'm old. Just go ahead of me, have fun, man. Thank you, though. It's okay, I'll wait. So one more time, like, you know, I'm just a COVID, I'm a COVID rider. I means I just started riding. I'm a beginner. I'm a newbie. I go on all the easy stuff. I don't do the hard stuff. So, you know, you don't want to ride with me. He goes, that's okay. I'll do that too. So now I'm like out of excuses. So I'm like, all right, I'll ride with you. And he goes, let me go see if others want to come. I'm like, no. So he finds one other guy. Now the three of us are riding. And after about a couple minutes, that other guy is like, Oh, I go a different way. So he leaves us, and I'm like, dang it, I should have thought of that excuse. <laughs> so we're riding, and you know, I'm like, are you in college? I'm not sure. It's Monday. Why aren't you in school? And he's like, no, I homeschool. Like, How old are you? 13? Why am I riding with a 13-year-old kid <laughs> on a Monday? So you know, we start chatting, and, and right from the get-go, I can kind of notice that his bike is old and, and he's having problems. Every few minutes we go up a bump and his chain comes off, so he's fixing the chain and we're waiting, he goes a little further, he's got to adjust the seat and, you know, but he's just having a blast the, the entire time. At some point I, I ask him, hey, what, what kind of bike is that? And he's like, oh, it's an old hand-me-down, I think it's a 2012, 2013, giant talon. And the minute he said, giant Talon, the light bulb goes on. Something kind of strikes the chord because at that moment, in my possession, sitting in my garage, uh, was a 2021 
fairly new, still in good condition, giant talon. And, and here's a picture of it. And the reason I have a picture of it is just because a couple days before that, I had asked Pastor Brandon to take pictures of the bike. Because if you didn't know, Brandon is a bike whisperer. <laughs> so he's able to take pictures of bikes in such a way that people see those pictures and they want to give you more money than what it's worth. <laughs> so I had Brandon take pictures, and my intent was to do that bike ride, go home, and post these pictures on off -road. Hoping I could recover the cost, hopefully hoping I can get 500, 600, maybe $700 for this bike. So as soon as he says that his bike is a giant talent, the thought enters my mind. Would you give this kid your giant talent? And my immediate thought was, no. I'm not giving this kid my giant talent. I don't even want to be running with this kid. But that thought just keeps lingering. And as we're riding and talking, I'm like arguing with myself. But I'm like, who am I arguing with? Because I don't want to give him my giant talent. Like 500, 600, that's a lot of money. And I'm like, okay, God, is this you? But God, if it's you, like, I can't just make this decision by myself, right? This is a family decision. This is a significant amount of money. Like, God, I can't decide. I need to ask Amber first. We're one flesh. These decisions need to be made together. <laughs> right, so I make this deal with God. Like, well, I got to go home first. I can't do it. So eventually I get home. We do the ride. We get back to the, the meeting spot. He's like, hey, can I take a selfie? Can I get your number? Let's do this again. And I'm like, all right. I give my number, and I get home, and Amber's like, oh, how was the ride? And I'm like, you'll never guess. So I explain everything that happened, and the first thing Amber says is, oh, so I guess we're giving him the bike. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. I got to give him this bike. But then I think to myself, well, I can't even contact this kid. Right? So God, even if you, I wanted to, like, what am I going to go? Sit in the parking lot and just wait for him to, to come back? Okay, God, if he contacts me, I can't contact him, but if he contacts me, then I'll, I'll give him the bike. One hour later, he texts. <laughs> hey, man, thanks for the ride. Let's do it again soon. So now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convicted. So I ask him, hey, I got this bike. I show him that picture. I'm like, you want it? He's like, what? Are you serious? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much. I go, but here's the deal. I got to talk to your parents first. You know, 42-year-old guy meeting a kid in a park, giving him a bike, like, <laughs> it's just bad, right? So I'm like, no, I got, I got to talk to your parents first. So he's like, all right, hold on, hold on. My parents said, yeah, and I'm like, no, I need to talk to your parents. So his dad gets on the phone, and I can tell he's a little bit, like, guarded. Like, how do you know my son? What is this? I'm like, first of all, he asked me to ride. I did not see him explain the situation. He goes, okay, well, how about we meet in the park tomorrow? We meet in the park tomorrow. Okay. So I show up, and uh, he, he gets there. And, and once again, you know, I could just tell. He's like feeling me out, right? Who is this guy? And I don't know what his faith background was at the time. So I'm kind of like, you know, like, what do I say? Like, God told me to give your kid a bike. So I'm like, look, I was riding. You seem like, a, you know, your son seems like a great kid. His bike is older. And I work at a church, and I... And he goes, wait, are you a pastor? I go, 
yeah, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, no wonder. I thought you were a weirdo. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm like, totally understand why I'm meeting you in the park. So he goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. And he runs to his car. He comes out with this binder. He opens it up, and he begins to, to tell me about this missions organization that he's, he's a part of. And I've heard a lot about different missions organizations, so there's nothing about this organization that really stood out. But then he begins to show me pictures on his phone, how just that summer, so a couple months before, he had gone to, to like Turkey. And I don't remember exactly where we but he showed me pictures of him in Turkey, meeting with the locals, sharing the gospel. And then he shows me pictures of his 14-year-old daughter who had gone to like Jordan that summer. And then he shows me pictures of his son, the one that I was riding with, who had gone to Kazakhstan. His seven-year-old, without parents, without him, you know, with chaperones, who had gone to somewhere else in the Middle East. And even at that, at that moment, even though I didn't know much about their missions organization, what hit me was that this was a, a person, this was a family who was living it, who was passionate about people who have never heard about Jesus, and he's living it. And that was both inspiring and it was convicting. And then he looks at me and he says, you should go. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just trying to give you this bike. Right, like I'm trying to do my good deed for the year, and you're telling me I need to, to go on mission. So I was honest. I'm like, I don't even know where to begin to, 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 go, to go, not just missions, but somewhere like the Middle East. And he goes, oh, take, take vision school. It's a nine-week course. Once a week, take the course, and then you can go. Anywhere you want, Middle East. Uh, when is the class? Where do they meet? He goes through his folder. Um, there's one in La Palma, <laughs> right by my house. And uh, it starts this week. So, you know, we eventually finish up our conversation. I'm walking back to my car and I'm like, what just happened? And I just feel God kind of tugging, just go to one class. So that week, I go to that one class. I eventually had to postpone, so I'm actually taking the class right now. I'm halfway through. And all I can say is it's been really, really good. And I wish I could say that God addressed this part of my life years before, but for whatever reason, he's doing it now. And he's stirring in such a way where it, it, it feels new, it feels different, and I'm both excited and scared. But you see, God didn't start this season for me with the question, would you go to the Middle East? He didn't ask me, would you go preach the gospel and somewhere it's illegal and share with a Muslim who's never heard of Jesus? He didn't even start with, would you take this course? He simply began with, would you give this kid your bike? Is there anything that God may be inviting you into this morning? Some way that God is saying, I have forgiven you. I, 
have nothing but grace and mercy for you. Do this one thing. To come and experience and receive more of it. Maybe there's a thought that's been lingering with you for a while. A thought where you don't, you don't have, have no idea where it's coming from. Maybe there's something that you feel God's been tugging. Something that makes you feel uncomfortable. Something you feel you're not ready for. That's way beyond your abilities. Maybe it's just something small. Time with him. Sacrificing something. Committing to something. And if you're not sure, it's an opportunity to ask God. We can ask God this every single day. God, is there anything I can do to get closer to you, to experience more of you, to receive more of your grace? And whatever that might be, whatever it might be, no matter how big, how small, I hope and I pray that you say yes. Let's say you say yes and you allow God to give you the grace, to give you that love that you are yearning for, whether you see it or not. So at this time, we're going to have a time of, of, of baptism. And baptism is a, a perfect example of responding in faith. It's an opportunity for us to, to communicate. Like, God, I might not fully understand the meaning of baptism. I may not fully understand why you've chose this vehicle to do what it is you, you call us to do, but you invite us to do it. And because you invite us to do it, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to respond with faith. I'm going to step into that, and I'm going to receive all that you long to give. So this morning we have four of our young but mature brothers and sisters who are going to get baptized this morning and declare their faith and, and we're going to celebrate and we're going to rejoice over their faith and responding to the call that Jesus has placed on their life. So will you pray with me?